but they weren't necessarily thinking about generative AI and the ways that it could help. So they, just like other faculty, had to scramble to think about the inclusion of generative AI, both in the mundane tasks that we have to do in our jobs or in, in the training for the jobs that we're going to get, but also the very incredible creative ways that we can use generative AI to enhance the work that we do. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hi, Brad. Hi, Tiffany. Glad to be here. This is part two of a two-part series. So if you didn't get a chance to catch part one with David Reed of the University of Florida, please go back and tune in. Otherwise, we're welcoming David back. Hi, David. Hello. It's great to be with you again. And we're going to keep the conversation going about AI across the curriculum. So without further ado, we're going to jump in. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hi, Brad. Hi, Tiffany. Glad to be here. This is part two of a two-part series. So if you didn't get a chance to catch part one with David Reed of the University of Florida, please go back and tune in. Otherwise, we're welcoming David back. Hi, David. Hello. It's great to be with you again. And we're going to keep the conversation going about AI across the curriculum. So without further ado, we're going to jump in. So on the flip side, do you have faculty saying, no, wait a minute, we're training our students how to use AI. Doesn't that mean that they're going to use that tool to complete all of our assignments? And what do we do about that? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So I would say our faculty are a little more savvy about that than your average faculty member, only because we've been talking about AI for so long at the University of Florida, long is two and a half years, but it's you know longer than our yeah. chat GPT <laughs> world, right? So I think our faculty are ready for that. Um, We've had numbers of workshops and uh, different um, opportunities for students, or for faculty rather, to learn about generative AI and, and how to, to deploy it. So what we're recommending to our faculty is go all in on ChatGPT and other generative AI, give assignments early in the semester that both demonstrate how to use it, but also what its shortcomings are. And then there's plenty of things that you can do to circumvent certain types of cheating. So for instance, you can ask ChatGPT to create a summary or a treatise on a given topic and then tell the student they have to create uh, critique what ChatGPT oh. just produced, right? And then you also tell them how they have to cite it. And then you, if you give your prompts that you gave to ChatGPT, you need to see that a student can understand and learn from the response they get from a simple, dumb prompt yeah. versus one that's highly complex, right? And if you give a highly complex prompt to something like ChatGPT, you're going to get a much better answer. You're going to get something that's much more usable. And so teaching the students how to use it is really important. But then again, at the same time, we also have to be explicit about when you cannot use it, like a midterm or a final or a, a take-home assignment of a particular kind. So our faculty have gotten that message, and, and we've got more workshops coming up trying to give them that message. But this is a tool that their students are going to need to use when they go out into the real world. They need to learn how to use it now with the proper guardrails up to teach them how to experiment with it and see where it's successful and where it isn't. 
So I think it's safe to say you are miles ahead of the rest of the colleges and universities in the world. (laughs) And that's exciting. But what's scary about being in that position? You have no one to phone when you have a question. (laughs) If you get to a point where you're really scratching your head about something, you take a university who's been doing AI for decades, Carnegie Mellon, for example, they do hardcore AI development. They are building new AI de novo. And that's not what we're doing at the University of Florida. Some of us are doing that, not many, but a few are. We're applying it in every conceivable field to ask these big questions about changes in the environment or health or whatever. And when we're doing it in a multidisciplinary approach across a broad university or teaching it that way, you can't phone a friend very easily and have somebody who's solved this problem and gone through it. So that part can keep you up at night if you let it. (laughs) If you could go back to the beginning of the grant period when the supercomputer was granted, was donated by the alum, is there anything that you would do differently in your approach to seeing this out? Yeah, I don't think so. I think the choices we made were good choices at the time. We were incredibly fortunate, like just having space for this machine to go in. We had at the at an early retreat, we were telling the faculty about this new initiative in AI, and we had scientists that spoke up and said, we have to have the humanities involved. We have to teach courses in AI ethics or else this is going to be a miserable failure. And it meant so much to our humanists to have the scientists saying that rather than them having to stand up and and advocate for the humanities and for ethics. So we had a lot of really fortunate coincidences that really helped us uh, move quickly and help us uh, take a top-down initiative and make it more grassroots. So I wouldn't change any of that. We were really, really lucky. If we could have foreseen generative AI a little bit sooner, we could have probably done a bit more in that front. But I think we were really lucky and I probably wouldn't change a thing, to be honest. Wonderful. And it sounds like you have a culture, just that idea that scientists would say, we need to do this. A culture where people engage in dialogue. Yes. We had, I think, 700 faculty at that retreat. And one thing that we haven't talked about is all of this happened during COVID. So <laughs> that machine moved in January, two months before we all went home. Everyone ran away. <laughs> yeah. So we all went home in March, and that's when all of the meetings really started in earnest. We had a dozen different working groups working on different aspects of this initiative. And I really think that With all the negativity going on, I think people enjoyed having something that was forward-looking and positive to to invest in. All our meetings were done by Zoom for for a huge amount of the time. But yeah, I think that led to a spirit of collaboration and cooperation that was fortunate. Of course, we don't want to go through that again. But it's amazing to me that all of that progress happened at a time where we were also dealing with a pandemic. That seems crazy to me. Incredible. When I think about the University of Florida and the distinction of applying AI across disciplines and where you're at with it, it's inspiring. And then again, it also feels different because you do have the supercomputer and because you have already established a culture celebration of AI across all the disciplines. But for many institutions, 
in November 2022, when ChatGPT made its grand entrance, folks were scrambling to decide how to implement it at the university level and focusing specifically on generative AI, not all types of AI, having that grand initiative that the University of Florida has. So I'm just curious how the rise of generative AI impacted the existing curriculum that you already had. And I'm assuming though, that they are going to be different than those of us that are just rushing to throw in a class on prompt engineering or prompt writing and generative AI, whereas you have this robust curriculum and now generative AI has made a grand splash. So tell us a little bit about how that's affecting your initiative. Yeah, Tiffany, that's a great question because it, it did exactly that. It caught us by surprise in the same way that it did everyone else. We just happened to understand how it fits into the larger picture of AI. But all of our faculty who are teaching AI, think about AI in the built environment, a great class that we have for architecture students and, and building and construction students. They talk about uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, all kinds of interesting things about AI, but they weren't necessarily thinking about generative AI and the ways that it could help. So they, just like other faculty, had to scramble to think about the inclusion of generative AI, both in the mundane tasks that we have to do in our jobs or in, in the training for the jobs that we're going to get, but also the very incredible creative ways that we can use generative AI to enhance the work that we do. So our faculty were really no different in the sense that they had to react quickly to put generative AI more um, uh, at the forefront of what they're doing or even add it to a class where it wasn't being discussed before. But having the foundational knowledge and having students with some foundational knowledge in AI certainly allows a deeper understanding of how generative AI works and how it's being used. And it doesn't seem quite the black box enigma that it might to people who haven't had that experience or training. Do you envision a standalone offering, whether it's a course or a certificate or a program specifically on generative AI, or is that something that's going to be integrated in existing curriculum? Yeah, so it, it could go either way. So mm -hmm. our colleges are uh, responsible for building out their own curriculum. And so we, in the provost office, try to facilitate certain things, but we can't really arm twist to get a, a new course built. So it's not as though we're clamoring for that and asking for it, but I can see how useful it is. Think of a, so our primary vehicle for students who want to learn AI is this three course certificate that an undergraduate can take. Not all students have time for three additional courses. And if they feel like a course in prompt engineering is what's best for them, I hope that we have one. We certainly have all kinds of boot camps and workshops and things like that where they can learn it. But if they want a formal course in it, I would like to see somebody at the university develop that. And I think an entrepreneurial department will probably do that pretty quickly. Such a diplomatic and wonderful answer. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> they do drive the curriculum. But what my unit does, my center, we facilitate or encourage faculty to create courses that we want. We pay them for a release time from teaching. We pay for the production costs to build out a new course. So many of our courses have online components mixed with in-person things that there's production costs to developing a new course. So one thing that we can do is we can incentivize through money and paying for the course development, these courses that we think are helpful to the units, but we still let them pick the course. We just choose which ones we want to help in that way. Awesome.
So, so imagine I'm listening to this podcast and I'm the provost or dean at a small college somewhere, totally excited by what you're doing, but also thinking to myself, we are struggling to keep our heads above water. We don't have a $65 million computer. What would you recommend? Two, two things. So first of all, you do not need a $65 million computer. You need a few GPUs. So we haven't talked about this, but most computers are using CPUs to do the mathematics that's going on inside your computer. A GPU is a graphics card. That's the thing that makes oh. your gaming look amazing. It just so happens to be a vehicle for doing mathematical calculations really quickly. And so if you offload some of the work that needs to be done in your computer to the graphics processor, that can be working in parallel with your compute processor, your CPU. Mm. So these GPUs that we use for Hypergator are just enlarged, giant, faster versions of the thing that makes your graphics look really good when you're playing video games. But I don't want to diminish it, but that's essentially what it is when you boil it down. You don't have to have a, a multi-million dollar supercomputer to do AI. You probably need a few of those dedicated GPUs, but that's a trivial amount of money compared to the, the big computer that we have. The second thing I would say is, and we do this quite frequently now, we have started training programs where we go to colleges and our faculty uh, teach professors mm -hmm. at other college enough AI to get them started. So yep. we did this at Palm Beach State College for one uh, in South Florida. So about seven or nine of our faculty went down there for two weeks and talked and worked side by side with their faculty. So like our engineering faculty, were working with their engineering faculty, our mm -hmm. journalism faculty with their journalism faculty, and specifically talking about AI, giving them the basics, but also handing over some curricular materials. And so there's opportunities to do things like that. And then lastly, I'll say that our provost, who was the grand architect for this, his name is Joe Glover, is going to be giving a workshop at the Association for Public and Land Grant Universities, APLU, coming up in November. And it's specifically geared towards provosts and presidents. So at that workshop, <clears throat> he's going to give the, uh, the roadmap of how you do this and especially pitched to colleges and universities that don't have enormous resources to put into this. I think the thing that's so important, though, as many small colleges and regional colleges are losing students to bigger land-grant colleges and so forth, uh, having a robust AI or emerging technologies program is going to be in high demand for your students. And so I think if you can do this, especially if you can do it on a shoestring, it could be the kind of thing that brings in a lot more students for you, given the relevance of it to so many different degrees and career paths for students. So if you could train up some faculty with enough knowledge to be able to teach the fundamentals of AI, hopefully something on AI ethics, and then a few ways in which it's applied in different uh, career paths, uh, I think a school could do this without that much uh, startup and, and cost involved. I really do. So you can start with a course, an elective course, build it into a certificate, build it into a program. Yeah, and, absolutely. And there. I do. I think it can work just that way. And I think you could do it quite quickly if you had a good ethics course that already focused on big data and technology. You could revamp that course very quickly. I think our real key innovation was the Fundamentals of AI course that we have. It doesn't require a student to have any computer programming skill. It was built from our engineering faculty to be for non-engineers, and, and anyone wow. at the university is, is capable of being successful in this class. 
um, that syllabus is on the web. You can go to ufl.edu and search for fundamentals of AI and get that syllabus. That's a great place to start. Wonderful. What else are you, what else is on the docket for you for the coming year? Yeah, the, the next big thing for the University of Florida is called Digital Twins. And so okay. Digital Twins are really, really cool. The, our, our partner, NVIDIA, has the ability within their software infrastructure to create a digital copy of something else that exists in the world. And there's lots of these. You should center of that. I mean, it lives in a computer. You can run experiments on what would it take if I changed the floor of this factory to this configuration? Or what if we had a sudden influx of boxes around December 15th? What are we going to do, right? And so having a digital model of something that in an AI environment asks allows you to ask really pivotal questions with huge amounts of data, that's a digital twin. So we have, NVIDIA has a digital twin of the earth with all of the Earth's systems, the, the biosphere, the lithosphere, the atmosphere. We have digital twins of buildings. They're coming online here at the University of Florida to study how the building is used, energy efficiency, and all kinds of other things. One of the really cool ones um, that's on the horizon that I can't yet talk about too much <laughs> is a digital twin of a hospital and what that looks like. So think about patients and patient care and healthcare costs and all kinds of things. So there are these digital twins. We've purchased the software that we'll use for this. We have all of our faculty on notice, whether it's faculty who work in the environment and sensing the environment. Think about all this hot weather we're having. The water around the state of Florida is increased to very high temperatures that has negative effects on corals and lots of other animal species. All of these things can be digitized. And when you have enough information, uh, whether that's information from data sensors out in the water or drones flying over crop fields or the telemetry that you have on you when you're in the hospital. You know, there's lots of places to get a lot of data. That's an area where when you can synthesize those data and create a digital copy of that, you can start asking really important questions about how that system functions and what perturbations to that system or changes to that system, what outcomes are going to happen when you do that. So digital twins are a big thing on our horizon, and we're really fortunate to have the big supercomputer because that'll allow us to do that with really large data sets and really big questions. Well, I have a request to make. I'm wondering if you could make a digital twin of the United States government. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that there's podcast. enough. I don't know that there's enough variables to model that, but <laughs> maybe. <laughs> oh. <laughs> And oh, yeah, David, yeah, this has been so much fun. There are some questions that are beyond AI's capabilities. <laughs> I'm not sure. We'll find its limits sometime. Oh, I am in. I'm in awe of the University of Florida. That's oh, thank so you. So incredible. Thank you. Well, we're really proud of all that we've done, and and like I said, the best part about it is, it's thousands of people who have put in time and effort in this, all rowing in the same direction. It's not a top-down kind of initiative anymore. And so we're, we're really glad that that caught on because it's allowed us to do so much more in a short period of time. So just imagine this. If, let's say I'm a football coach. Could you make a digital twin of the University of Alabama football team 
and then give me direction on how to beat them. Absolutely. The only, well, I don't know if you can ever beat Alabama on any given day, but, <laughs> but think about this analogy. If you know anything about baseball, and I used to be a huge baseball nut, they have more statistics that they record in a baseball game than you could yep. possibly imagine, right? And football to the same extent, it's getting to be the same way. All of those data are data that AI can make a big difference in. And so, yes, AI in sports is a big thing. And you can bet that the most competitive teams are doing that and having those kinds of data analytics folks in their shop looking at how to beat Alabama. And you just mentioned another one. You said that you would bet. So couldn't I figure out how to win at blackjack? I'm sure you could. I wouldn't know anything about it, though. <laughs> this unfolding of topics and questions is about how my discussions with ChatGPT go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh. Yeah, absolutely. David, you have been a delight, my friend. This has been yeah. so good. Yes, thank you for your can-do attitude. I Again, I knew from the first time that we talked when you said, sure, I'll do whatever. Sure, let's meet. Let's get a podcast. Let's consult. Let's do something. Uh, that this was going to be great. And it really is. So thank you for what you and your colleagues are doing to not just make the University of Florida a great experience for students, but also to share with your colleagues across higher ed. So absolutely. My pleasure and, and our pleasure. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this time as much as we did. And we're going to link to resources from the University of Florida for you to check out and to celebrate with us. And we'll be back next week with a new topic and new guest on the Digital to Learn podcast. We'll see you then. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.